Hello, and welcome to the Family Histories podcast, the show for and about those of us who are sat quietly in libraries, archives, and spare rooms all around the world, tirelessly piecing together our collective social and family history. My name is Andrew Martin, I'm a family historian, and I'll be your host. In this episode, The Glazier, we'll be hearing about my guest's 19th century ancestor who used a wide range of skills to keep a roof over his family's head, and we'll be on the hunt for an Essex man who might have roots in Northern Ireland. So, put down that old trade directory, grab a cuppa, and let's meet our guest. My guest today is a family historian, a military history fan, and a genealogy blogger. He's also a regular columnist for the UK's Family Tree magazine, and he can be found spreading the genealogy joy across social media with his work helping to moderate forums and the weekly hashtag Ancestry Hour on Twitter. So, before he tries to block and report me for waffling on and on and on, I should introduce my guest. It's Paul Chiddix. Hello, Paul. Welcome to the Family Histories podcast. Hello, Andrew, and thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Um, The start is always the best place to start. So let's find out from you where your interest in family history began. For me, there wasn't really a defining moment as such. Okay. Uh, I came to family history gradually over a period of years, Mm -hmm. uh, and all for very different reasons. Um, Right. Sadly for me, my dad died when I was just three years old. Mm. Um, so I grew up and always felt like there was a piece of me missing, I guess, yeah. which of course it became more and more aware of this, of, of that piece missing as I got older. So then I started to ask some questions to my mum and my grandparents. What was my dad like? Where did he work? Who were his friends? What were his interests? All the sorts of things that we sometimes can take for granted, um, as we grow up with both our parents. Yeah. So that kind of was one aspect of what sort of got me interested in in asking questions, shall we say. Um, sadly, by the time I was 21, all my grandparents had passed away way before I'd had the chance to ask them all the burning questions that I would dearly love to ask today. Yeah. So I'd say to anyone listening today who's out there, if you take one thing from the podcast, that's go and ask your grandparents or your older parents go and speak to them before it's too late you just never know how long that you you know you've got them doesn't have to be too too formal doesn't have to be a, an interview but just go and talk to them have a conversation um, just take them to maybe places of interest places that, that they remember ask them about their childhood growing up but more importantly listen to them Definitely. Because old people have got a lot of stories to tell and they're only too willing to have someone to listen. But life just seems so busy for everyone these days that we never really get time and we're always going to do that next week. But if you speak to any family history researcher, they'll always tell you their biggest regret is never speaking to their grandparents before they passed away. So that's my one tip for today. Very wise advice. The second significant part, again, was um, even there, I was thinking about it this week, it was just an, almost an unexplained uh, happening, shall we say. Okay. Um, after my grandparents passed away, my mum and her two sisters did, did the usual what you have to do, and that's to go and empty the house and, and do all those bits um, mm-hmm. when someone's passed away. Yeah. And on this particular day, I just happened to drop by. Can't explain why. Even to this day, I don't know why. It was the only day I ever called in. And just at the exact moment that my mum was going to throw away my great-grandfather's World War I medals. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, nobody know, knew at the time what they were, okay. why he received them. Didn't really know anything about them. Barely even knew the name, if I'm honest. Wow. So many, many years later, when I actually started to do a little bit of research the medals and my great-grandfather was really the first I'd say detailed piece of research that I did Mm -hmm. I went back over it 
several times and reviewed it and redid it like we all do. Yeah. But in terms of I'm going to research this man, I'm going to research these medals and find out what everything was, um, that was really the first first piece of detailed research that I did. Yeah. And now, obviously, I know he, he was a member of the Essex Regiment. Mm-hmm. He went to Gallipoli. And he died on the first day of the ill-fated Gallipoli campaign on the 25th of April, 1915. Wow. He's actually commemorated on the Hellas Memorial as well. And those medals now sit pride of place in the lounge. They are truly superb. And obviously, the significance of them is, is so important to me. That was very lucky for you to get there on that day. Oh, unbelievably. Even as I say, thinking about it this week and just going over different things and and you think, you know, if I'd have just gone home that day or gone somewhere else, who knows, they would have just gone in the bin. I'm convinced of it, gone in the skip with other bits and pieces. I guess at that point, you didn't know that they even existed. So they could have easily just gone, no one said a thing and you'd have been none the wiser. Didn't know they existed, didn't know what they were, absolutely. Nobody, Nobody really knew... Um, anything about him as such um, obviously because he passed away yeah. before my uh, mum and her sisters were, were alive sure yeah so it's one of those moments that you, you look back on and it, it was it meant to be mm. uh, and the final piece really in my jigsaw was when I started work I was a, a, an engineering apprentice and the foreman there where I worked he was an avid family history f- researcher okay and this is going back way before the internet when you had to actually go to places and look at things and, and pick up books and <laughs> thumb through archives and, and blow the dust off the rights with pencil. Absolutely. All of those things. And I was absolutely fascinated. He'd come in every lunchtime and he'd have all these new documents and all these new discoveries. He was a great storyteller. I mean, looking back there, I don't know if how much truth was in all the stories, <laughs> but just looking at the documents was enough um and it was sort of captivated me really and the way he connected the stories to the to the documents um yeah it was i was hooked so we say i was completely hooked yeah so those three things all kind of nudged you in the in the direction of being a family historian i would say so um i think it's it's one of those things that i think is kind of in us yeah and so you just need a reason or something to tease it out you either have an interest for history, social history, general history, um, family history, and they're all connected. And sometimes you just need a trigger. And that could be one particular moment. Yeah. It could be like my my case where there was several small snippets that, that pulled everything together, really. So there's no sort of epiphany for me. It was just a, a slow crawl into family history. <laughs> Were there any juicy family rumours that you've uh, gone on to research? There's always there's always good rumours. Um, <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll touch on a bit of that later on, but when I tell, tell the life story. But oh, okay. my, grand, my granddad would always tell me, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> but that's no good to me as a family historian. No, no. Because I'm seeking the truth. Exactly. But um, embellishing a good story with an element of truth is is perhaps a bit bit closer to what we're looking for. Uh, what do you think is your favourite part of researching? Oh, that's a good question. No, I don't think anyone's ever asked that before. Favourite part? Um, I think it's when you pull everything together, you know, certain facets um, it could be documents, stories, photos, and you actually condense all that into a life story or a biography. Um, it's not it's not just the records, it's not the online research, and it's not about the individual connections. It's when you put everything together into one, I wouldn't say a finished product because I'm not a professional researcher, but when you've actually finished with a, a biography or a story um, I think when you pull it all together, that's that's the, the sort of the best part for me. Yeah. So back to the to the storytelling, essentially. Yeah, a storytelling is a very big part of everything that I do. Yeah, it's it's fundamentals for me. It's uh, it's producing the stories because ultimately we're our ancestors' voice. Yeah. Without us, perhaps a lot of their voices would go unheard and unspoken. Absolutely. Uh, when you're asked where your family comes from. How do you normally answer that question? Oh, dear. For 
four consecutive generations of the Chidix line, um, we never moved outside of Essex. So <laughs> globe trotters, we certainly aren't. In fact, I'm the first to actually move out of the county on my direct line. Nice. Um, obviously, other other different lines have moved to different yeah. parts of the world. But even if you look at my ethnicity estimate on ancestry, I couldn't be any more Southern England than <laughs> it's it's phenomenal the amount of the DNA <laughs> that's shared with Southeast England. So uh, yeah, I'm not a globetrotter, or we're not from a family of globetrotters, certainly. Now you are the face of Dear Paul for Family Tree magazine. I am indeed. How did you end up doing that? Well, again, it was one of those moments that kind of happened, I'd say out of the blue, really. The original column in Family Tree magazine uh, was called Dear Tom. Okay. And Tom Wood was the custodian of the genealogical miscellany column for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And even though I've been writing the column for the last three years, I'll always think of the pages as Dear Tom. Sadly, when Tom passed away in 2020, there was a, obviously a gap that had to be filled. And I really felt so honoured and very humble when uh, Helen at Family Tree Magazine uh, invited me to, to take over the column. I say I still will always regard the column as, as Tom Tom's column. I, I kind of re regard myself as the caretaker. <laughs> I'm just the caretaker who's looking after Tom's column on his behalf. And I'd hope if he's watching, on looking down on us now, I would hope he is happy for the pages, uh, how they how they are, and they're in good hands. <laughs> how far do you have to work ahead? Oh God, you get lots of things sent to you. I think. Yeah, it's, I, I always try to work on two episodes at any one time, so I can slip things into okay. into one or the other. Yeah, I've kind of evolved my own format over the years that I've been doing it. Uh, and I've tried to put my own little stamp on things. And I think I kind of like to aim for a theme through each episode. I mean, mm -hmm. not every topic can be covered on every episode, but I like to, to have a bit of a theme, whether it's a census theme yeah. or burials or graves or uh, maybe some inquiries regarding um, some record office or burial registers. And uh, yeah, just try and keep a common theme through through each episode. Not always easy to achieve, but that's the idea. But some of the stories, because there's quite an, an element of research that I have to do myself. I mean, one in particular, it took over 12 months from the initial inquiry from the reader to actually before it went, went, went to print. Wow. But most of them take a little bit of digging. And sometimes I have to involve some genie, good genie friends, such as Dave Annell or Anthony Marr, yep. for some expert advice. Because, you know, we can't be experts in all areas of genealogy. No, that's true. Um, so if it's civil registration, Anthony would be my go-to for clarification. But we are really, really blessed that so many people are so helpful within the genealogy community. And most people that I ask are always only too willing to help. Uh, and that's that's really good. I also always like to involve an archive or a record office, which is something I've introduced because I don't think they get the plaudits um, and the visits and the numbers that maybe they should. Yeah, that's true. And too many of us are too comfortable with everything being online. Everything as in everything apart from all the other stuff that are sitting in archives. All the 95% of documents exactly. have never been um, transcribed. <laughs> and um, yeah. yeah, So I like to um, include an, ar an archive or even a museum and try to bring something a little bit interesting. Not necessarily a document. Some of them could be objects. I won't go into too much detail, but I've got two really interesting ones coming up. Okay. One involves some grenades. Okay. And one involves a ball of string. So I'll leave that one there for you and your listeners to have a think about <laughs> um, because they're coming up in the next couple of months. So uh, keep an eye out for those. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for those cryptic objects. Now, speaking of storytelling... Uh, you've been a successful uh, blogger for many years and you've written for yourself and for Family Tree magazine, but you've also set up the Old Palace School Bombing Project. Now, there's 
quite a lot of uh, interesting words in that title, but I don't like the sound of the combination. So what is that project and what inspired you to start it? Uh, again, it was one of those projects that came about almost indirectly, really. I'd say I stumbled into it almost. Okay. I always knew that my great aunt, Winifred uh, Wooten, had died during World War Two. And I also knew she was an auxiliary firewoman because I had some pictures. Mm-hmm. And I knew that my mum had taken her name uh, after she she died. But that's all I really knew. I didn't really know the details of the story. That's And that just sat there on the tree for many years. Because I did what everyone does when they first start tracing their family tree. I raced on every line <laughs> trying to go back as far as possible. Of course, that's what you do. You're not interested in the, the details and the stories. It's just generation, 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 maternal, paternal. Names and dates. Yep. So we throw all those bits on the on, on the board and some of them stick, some of them come off. Uh, and it's only really the last 10 years um, that I've really started to, to flesh out the stories and I've gone back over everything, double checked everything, just to make sure that the the trunk of the tree is nice and solid and there's no um, oddball bits there where I've gone off on a complete tangent. And it was only when I started doing that that I came back to that story. So some might say I've evolved from a genealogist into a family historian. <laughs> so I'm not a collector of dates and hoover of, of, of people. I'm now actually a bit more of a storyteller. I'm fleshing it out. I, yeah, yeah. And um, so I started to investigate the story and it was really the first port of call was obviously to send off uh, my great aunt's um, death certificate to find out the details from there and the death certificate had a death recorded as due to wartime operations okay which obviously piqued my interest immediately so i trawled newspaper archives and the essex record office and the london metropolitan archives and it was one of those stories it kind of was very difficult to, to find in the newspapers. Yeah. I now know, of course, that because it was such a tragic story, newspapers during the war, because of the effect on people at home and the morale, those sort of stories were very basically kept out of the press to, for obvious reasons, because they didn't really want people to be um, worried that the effects of, of the Blitz and that and what it was bringing to people at home. So, during that, I did manage to find some bits and pieces, and I then discovered that she was one of 34 firemen and women that died at the Old Palace School, which was in Poplar in East London. This was in the Blitz, okay. right at the height of the Blitz in April 1941. And it's still today the largest ever loss of life at one single incident in the fire brigade's history. Okay. Um, so I set about researching and telling that particular story. So I managed to uh, piece together some bits and pieces uh, and interviewed some people and found some people that had family connected. And so that became a blog. I make that sound like that was quite a quick piece of work. It was about five five years of not only that, obviously, because you're researching on other bits and at the same time, but because I live 200 miles away from everywhere that's got the archives that I need, <laughs> it has to be a, a sustained sort of approach when I, when I visit. Yeah. So... That kind of sat there, and then we had the 80th anniversary of the Blitz. So I wrote an article that appeared in Family Tree magazine. Uh, and from that article, one of the Family Tree magazine readers um, wrote in um, to say that she was connected to one of the 34 firemen and women, and that she'd done some research into, into his story, and kindly sent me all that research. And that really sparked the idea. Um, it was just that one thing that. I had my story. This kind lady had sent me her story. And I thought, well, there's 32 more stories out there to tell. Um, so I foolishly <laughs> set about the idea of, oh, can I write 32 more stories? And then I sat back and thought, mm, that's a bit of a tall order. Fair enough. So I did what we do these times. Um, I, I put a call to arms to all the genealogy friends on Ancestry Hour and Twitter. I got a fantastic overwhelming response I was blown away by the response Uh, and between myself and a few core researchers we've managed to do 32 of the 34 stories okay Um, it's been I mean it has been a journey I mean it's been so emotional because to do the stories any justice 
you have to have some emotional investment yourself and to do that and then listen to the stories um, and have the phone calls with children grandchildren and, and and descendants of those that died it's really difficult it was really difficult heartbreaking really the stories if you read some of the stories some are more heartbreaking than others but yeah the devastation and the loss it never goes away and yeah and it was it was such a humbling experience but it's also been the highlight of the whole project for me to speak to these uh, people that now that i regard as friends because even though I've completed the biographies on their ancestors. They still phone up and they still ask how things are going wow. and they still like to keep an eye on what's what's going That's on. That's great. Um, yeah, and it's, it's actually an honour to be entrusted to tell someone else's story. The families, to have that trust put in you to tell their stories is... Uh, it's a real privilege, actually. Yeah, it's a, a remarkable project, and I hope that people find it, I was going to say enjoyable, but I'm not really sure that's such the right words. Um, fascinating thing to to look at and to read and to read back on the lives of, of people who are in their trees. Um, in a slight change of tone, I believe that you and I share another common interest. Oh. Yeah, in that we are both what is classed as affols, adult fans of Lego. Oh, my God. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so I would love to hear your thoughts on... So imagine that we could merge those two interests together and that the lovely folks at the popular plastic brick building company Lego were listening to this podcast, and quite frankly, why wouldn't they? What do you think a Lego genealogy set or a series of Lego genealogy sets would look like? Oh, wow. You've just opened the can of worms now. <laughs> Let's imagine, imagine like a kind of a, maybe a small set and then a really big set. I've, I've seen a model of the Menning Gate. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't seen that one, um, no. I'll send you the pictures after. <laughs> that is absolutely mad. It's crazy. Okay. It's huge. Uh, and, and it's been built from, obviously, there's no instructions there's no yep. um, model that they're working yep, to custom. it's just built from photographs and, and and a person's impression oh it's phenomenal so i would definitely have a battlefield memorial okay uh, in my in my lego set probably the hellas memorial as my great-grandfather died at gallipoli and i'm certain it was emma jolly who who sent me a link or came up with an idea when I posted some pictures of uh, Lego. She said, why don't you do uh, a cemetery? Yeah. So, yeah, I've always had that in, you know, perhaps uh, Highgate or, or a famous cemetery um, and then try and get some pictures and mimic the stones in there. So that's kind of always I've had that in, in the background uh, as a really fantastic idea. So I'm going to build yeah. – some kind of a memorial then in my Lego set from uh, okay. our Danish friends. And I'm also going to build a cemetery as well. So that's my two choices. My two choices would be for the small set, I think I would have a, a, a piece of a cemetery and you would have someone doing the graveyard shift, walking around trying to find those relatives. <laughs> and, and I'm actually now, now as I'm saying that, I'm getting kind of, visualizations of a guest who was in uh, series three sheldon k goodman uh, and his love for well his cemetery club i can see a lego version of him looking around the gravestones trying to find a famous person absolutely so that would be my uh, small set but for my big set i think i would go for an archive and you'd have like the reader room oh, and then underneath good. you'd have lego cabinets where you have with the wheel on the side which you turn and they kind of open up on a on a kind of a track and you've got all of the different things in there so yeah i think that's the the two sets that i would go for for lego oh yeah yeah i like that yeah maybe a museum or a library yeah. um yeah yeah a, 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 perhaps a historic building yeah that's, a, that's a, i quite like the sound of that 
Might yeah. do the National Archives then. Oh, yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> That's a lot of pieces, I think. <laughs> That's a lot of pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Not every single record. I've, I think we'll, we'll, we'll kind of approximate those, I think. I think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, if the people at Lego are listening to this and would like to uh, pay two uh, toy developers uh, handsomely, then uh, just email us and uh, I'll put you in touch with, yeah, with Paul. We'll, so. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to get the patent out on them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everyone's family history is a story in itself, and sometimes when you brush away the cobwebs, rummage in that old box at the back of the cupboard, or go digging in the archives, something fascinating emerges. So, with that in mind, it's time for my guest to share the life story of one of their most fascinatingly good, bad, or just plain ugly relatives. Okay, Paul, who are you going to introduce us to? My maternal great-grandfather, William Tom Wooden. Okay. Now, I know a certain... uh element of William that will be good. There's probably a smattering of bad mixed in there. Oh, okay. Sounds good. And probably a tiny little bit of the ugly, just for good measure. (laughs) But we'll let your listeners decide for themselves what they think uh, after they hear William's story. Well, I'm on the edge of my seat now, so... uh... So don't judge me. (laughs) Go for it. Now, William is someone I would generously describe as a bit of an entrepreneur. Whereas somebody else outside looking in, they might actually describe him less favourably as a bit of a chancer. (laughs) But I think deep down at the core of William, that he was always really trying to do his best for an extremely large family in the East End of London during some of the toughest and most difficult economic times and social deprivation. Times were hard. But I think at the core of his his values was trying to do his best. William was born on the 28th of May in 1863 in Kentish Town in London. His parents were Thomas Wooden, who was a journeyman carpenter, born in Peterchurch in Herefordshire. And his mother was Nicolina Stamper, who was born in Edinburgh. Surprisingly, he was their only child. But at the time... When William was born, his mum, Nicolina, was aged 41, and she was a lot, lot older than her husband, Thomas. Okay. This was her second marriage. She had three children from, from the first marriage, who were obviously half-siblings to William. Now, Nicolina's father, Dominic Stamper, or Dominicio Stamper, giving him his full Italian name, was born in Como in Italy in 1765. Okay. He was a master gilder, carver, and barometer maker. Now, he arrived in Edinburgh in 1798, where Nicolina was born. And I did actually divert, sort of diversify a little bit there. Uh, I did manage to find some papers on Dominicio's arrival, the most horribly sounding documents I think I've ever come across. <laughs> it was the Register of Aliens. <laughs> oh, dear. In Edinburgh. Yeah, it's not the most, uh, yeah. When you pick up a set of documents, like, hmm, okay. It's not the register you want to be on, really, is it? Absolutely not. Um, so moving back to William. Um, William and his family um, grew up um, all around the St Pancras area of London. Um, and the 1881 census was the first one that gave us a bit of a clue as to the future of William and what he was going to be getting up to. Uh, and he's recorded there as a lead glazier. Okay. Now... Throughout his life, William had lots of different jobs, lots of different sidelines. Um, not all of these will be picked up on the census because we're only looking at an occupation every 10 years there. Mm-hmm. But his core skill, that of a lead glazier, was something that he always reverted back to. I've actually been unable to find any proof that he uh, served an apprenticeship as a lead glazier, which I assume he did, but I can't find any any records that, that reflect that. You may have just learned off a, another tradesman. Yeah, casually, yeah. But that was his core trade. Okay. Now, his first marriage was to Elizabeth Ellen Compton. Again, this was a marriage that took place back in St Pancras. At the time they, they, they were married, they were both 23. What was unusual about the marriage was perhaps at the time that they actually got married in a register office not actually in the parish church. Okay. And it was normally 
around denomination if there was a, a mixture of denominations that maybe they they chose a register office as a safer option yeah but when i dug a little bit deeper i found out possibly that because their first child was born two months before the marriage took place maybe they they ducked under the radar and opted for the for the, <laughs> ma- the uh, marriage to take place in the register office instead okay now they had seven children between the two of them and obviously we know that at this time William was a uh, lead glazier but this was quite a nomadic way of life yeah and the family moved from Watford back to London down to Portsmouth um, and lots of other movement in between census years um, where you pick up where the children were born in all sorts of locations and this would involve shall we say some unscrupulous behavior between the moves which maybe weren't so uncommon at the time okay um, the family would often do what would be termed as a midnight flip. I'm not sure if you've heard of that term. No, it doesn't sound like it's particularly a popular thing to do. No, no. It, literally, it would involve all the children packing up their belongings, wrapping them up into a bedsheet, climbing over a fence and disappearing down the road and leaving unpaid rent. <laughs> and this was uh, perhaps a common a common theme, but probably not so uncommon um, in the east end of London at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and more often than not, they would only move several streets over. As if you look at the, the, the different addresses, and it's never far away. Right. Now, it's difficult to judge the actions um, that he did to, to put food on the table, and, and, and he had a lot of mouths to feed with the hindsight that we have today. But I think he was shall we say, trying to do his best Yeah, is the polite way of putting it. It was the birth of their seventh child that perhaps had a, a quite a, a devastating effect on William and the family because his first wife, she sadly died during the childbirth. Um, and just over a year later, he remarried um, to Emily Dodd, again back in St Pancras. William and Emily went on to have nine further children of their own, which meant there were 16 children. Wow. Apart from the one that died when she gave birth, um, they all survived and all survived to, to adulthood. Again, given the poverty that was surrounded where they lived, kind of unheard of, I would say. Yeah, that's remarkable. But they eventually settled, settled into to Poplar. And some of my granddad's stories I remember growing up uh, about how the times were hard. And obviously there was two adults and, and at that point there was nine children living in the same house. And he said all the six girls shared the same bed. So... Uh, not quite top and tail in there. <laughs> it's certainly cramped conditions. Also, William had many different jobs. Uh, one was driving a horse-drawn <laughs> van for a, a local firm, which meant 6.30 start in the morning, doing a 12-hour day. And after that, he would have to bed down the horses, water and feed them before he actually could come home himself. And this he did six days a week for pound seven and six. He must have been exhausted. Oh, God. How do, how do you come home and his, his wife's looking after all the children? Yeah. And he's coming home absolutely shattered. Yeah. And that pound seven six would be pound thirty seven pence in today's money. Wow. But moving on to perhaps some more interesting tales regarding William. He had an absolute love of music and a great, amazing musical talent. Could play numerous instruments, too many to list. And he always boasted that he could play anything from a comb and tissue paper to an organ. <laughs> and more often than not, he would sit at the piano and have his meals while he was playing the piano. So he was absolutely obsessed with music. But that passed down to his children, because my grandfather and a lot of the siblings were all musically gifted. Uh, and my granddad could play, again, oh, if I said he could play a dozen instruments, that's probably uh, an <laughs> understatement. But he could never read a note of music. Okay. He played everything everything by ear. He never, he, there was no music sheets. Wow. He just played it um, as he heard it. Now, I know you're probably going to ask now, has any of that musical ability passed on to me? <laughs> well, let me tell you a little story. At any of the family gatherings, my granddad would always, he would always end up on the piano and always end up singing didn't need any excuse and as I was the youngest grandchild I was kind of a favorite grandchild shall we say so I would always end up on the stool next to him while he was playing and I could I could still hear his voice now as I was singing it'd say 
stop singing, boy. You're putting me off key. (laughs) So literally, I have no musical talent, singing voice or ability whatsoever. So that that genius sort of skipped me completely. For a moment, though, I thought you were going to say you couldn't play any instrument apart from the comb with the tissue paper. I'm not even, I wouldn't be any good at that. spoons (laughs) spoons <laughs> oh that could i might have a go at that i might the spoons. have spoons you can play the yeah, spoons i'm okay. sure i can going back to the census returns uh, that we spoke about earlier they only really capture the lead glazier part of his o- occupation okay but lots of oral testimony tells me that he used to busk regularly in the streets to, to earn some extra money so he'd go around the, the pubs uh, and, the, and the streets themselves playing a trumpet or whatever uh, just to earn a few extra bob um, yeah. to feed all those hungry mouths at home i was going to ask if he put his musical skills to use as a job but it sounds like he knew that he could earn some money f- by performing absolutely and now there's a, a family story that i'm never going to prove but i absolutely love the story because it really it probably encompasses the character of william now, he told everyone in the family, and that's come down all the generations, because he used to write his own music and he used to write his own songs all the time. Okay. Now, he told everyone that he wrote the songs Any Old Iron, Bold Beef and Carrots, <laughs> and I'm Henry VIII I Am. Now, they're all very famous sort of East End type songs. I know all three of those and I can hear them in my head. Not all at the same time. That'd be crazy, but I can hear them. Absolutely. Now, the family law tells us that he sold them songs down the pub for two shillings. <laughs> oh. Now, did he, did he, is, I, I always think that with all these stories, there's an element of truth. At the, at, the, at the substance of the story, there's a, a little bit of truth there. Yeah. Now, whether it, one of those songs he wrote and he sold it and he embellished it and added the others on, but of course, one of those we'll never, ever know. Never never going to be able to prove that. Tantalising. He was always an entertainer. He's always up on stage. And again, another little sideline and another little piece of uh, something that you might find amusing, shall we say. He did a, a Punch and Judy show. He had a regular stall on Southend Beach with a Punch and Judy stand. I should say, that's the way to do it, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And of course, back then, it was the stable part of the British summer holiday. Wherever you went, Blackpool, Skegness, wherever you went for your holiday, every beach had a Punch and Judy stall. I actually Googled it just in prior to telling you these. I wrote a few notes. Because the Punch and Judy has now died out, there are still three Punch and Judy shows in the country doing the rounds. So it hasn't quite died out, but it certainly brings back fond memories for me because I remember it distinctly growing up. Uh, And I know my granddad did because he would do the Punch and Judy stand at home as well as on the beach. So it it went everywhere. It was wherever he went, the, uh, the Punch and Judy followed him. So all the grandchildren, they all were subjected, shall we say, to the, the Punch and Judy show. <laughs> One more little story going back to him about uh, his work as a lead glazier. Now, we already know that he worked at different places around the country, but there are two significant pieces of work that he worked on. He worked on the Five Sisters window in York Minster when that was restored, which if you, if you get, I mean, I've visited York Minster. It's a stunning window. Uh, and if you Google it, you'll get some pictures. Um, I mean, he didn't do the, the whole window himself, obviously, but he, he worked at uh, a significant part of the restoration of that. And he also worked on Salisbury Cathedral. Again, I'm not sure this time what particular window or windows that he worked on. Um, so, you know, he was he was good at his trade, obviously, to, to be involved with those sorts of pieces of work. Uh, and when they moved to Portsmouth, I know that he worked in the state dining rooms on the luxury liners. Wow. So he did a lot of lead glass in the, the shall we say, the, the posh liners of the day. And he actually had his own distinct moniker. Um, again, I've only found this out more recently. Yeah. All lead glaziers had their signature so that you could recognize their work. And this was a, a, a W over an inverted W, if that makes sense, with a, a horizontal line between the two. So uh, you could distinctly tell that that it was his work yeah it's his work yeah later on in life he um, went to live with one of his daughters due to ill health Um, he died sadly in 1951 but i would say that i I would fondly look at on him as as what we would call a character it sounds like he worked so hard to keep that what must have been 
But what sounds like it should have been a large roof over that family's head, but I bet it wasn't a large roof. No. No. No, he was, uh, as I say, I think there was uh, at the heart of everything he did, the family and feeding the family and looking after the family was at the core of his values. The ducking and diving and (laughs) some of the, the more dodgier exploits, I think, were done for the right reasons. But that's my sentiment on the story. He sounds like a, a very hard worker. Well, thank you, Paul, for sharing William's story. But I think it's now time for you to face the brick wall. Oh, my goodness. Brick walls are so frustrating. I've got plenty of them. And no matter how much I try to break through, they just won't budge. So in this part of the show, my guest is going to share one of his brick walls in a hope that one of you, dear listeners, might just have a clue or research idea that brings it tumbling down. Right, dear Paul, what have you got for us? Right, I've got the very first brick wall that I ever encountered, Okay, um, which now must be at least 30 years old. <laughs> and it's been, it's been sitting there and gnawing away at me uh, for as long as I can remember. Oh. And I pick it up, put it down, and I pick it up and put it down. Torture. I don't seem to be able to make any progress on it. Uh, and I've thrown everything at it over the years. Um, and let's hope somebody can solve it for me. Fingers crossed. So my four times great-grandfather is Samuel Chiddix. Um, and like I said, he's been a brick wall for at least 30 years. So what do I know about Samuel? I know that he died and he was buried in South Fambridge in Essex in February 1816. And his given age at the time he died was 55. So we have an approximate birth year of 1761. But where he was born still remains a mystery. We have two marriages for him, both in South Fambridge in Essex. Firstly to Mary Turner in 1787. Now, there is a little bit of an element of doubt over this marriage because there was no children, which was extremely unusual. But following on from that, I can find no death record for a lady called Mary Turner or a lady called Mary Chiddix. Okay. Um, not cert- Certainly not that would be in the right area at the right time. Right, okay. So I have the bands for that wedding. But whether the marriage actually took place or whether, you know, is a bit of a, an element of doubt, shall we say. Fair enough. Okay. But his second, second marriage was to Anne Beard in 1794. And this produced 10 children and they were all born in and around the neighbouring parishes. Okay. But with a name like Chiddix, you think you've got half a chance because of the rarity of the name. Yeah. Um, but over the years, I've probably came across at least a dozen variations in spelling. Chittix, Chittuck, yeah, you can, you name it. Anything C-H-I, and I'm straight on it. <laughs> um, and there is a real pocket of concentrated area where these names all appear. It's all on the east coast of England, Norfolk, Suffolk, and Essex primarily. Um, but the interesting part in all of these is the majority of those have links back to Northern Ireland which came as a bit of a surprise. Okay. Now, once the uh, DNA testing for, for, for genealogy became more affordable, of course, I was hopeful that this might provide the breakthrough for me. Um, so I threw the autosomal test at it with Ancestry. But, of course, you're probably on the edge of what an autosomal test will give you. Yeah. Um, so I've subsequently done a Y-DNA test with family tree DNA. So that's reaching back further. That gives me more generations. Yeah. And that provides some really interesting matches. I've got six matches in Northern Ireland and America. Um, and they all connect to County Tyrone and County Fermanagh. Okay. But I appreciate with a birth date of 1761, we're probably realistically on the edge of what records might be available. <laughs> But if we accept that that's a possible area, now I'm a great believer in in instinct in family tree. I know you need corroboration and you need the genealogy proof. But my gut instinct tells me that they originated in Northern Ireland. 
spread to Norfolk, Suffolk, and maybe down the east coast of, of the UK or England. But what I still can't get my head around is if I accept that as being factually okay, you know, factually, I can't prove it, but let's say he was born in Northern Ireland. How on earth did he end up in a tiny hamlet that of less than 100 occupants in the most remote corner of Essex? I just can't fathom how he would end up there. Because that's quite a lot of, I mean, potentially a bit of Wales, but uh, that's quite a lot of England to stamp all over. It is. To get over there to Essex. Yeah, it's a, a big march. It's such a leap of faith to me. You know, if you've got ancestors in Dublin and they move to Liverpool, you can see that. Yeah. You can, there's a logical step. Yeah. And another sort of uh, connections between Ireland and Scotland and the, and the Celtic um, areas, yeah. um, you can see the connections. But if, if he was in Northern Ireland and he did go to um, the tiny which is really a tiny, tiny hamlet in Essex. How and why and, and when? Gosh, I wonder whether maybe, again, I still can't explain why he, he would leave Northern Ireland, but maybe he went to London and was there just for a short while and then came back out of London, as a lot of Londoners tend to do these days. They tend to move out eventually. But maybe he he left London and moved up into Essex instead. Yeah, it's, it's such a, um, as I say, it would be nice to find him in Norfolk and Suffolk because I can see that stretch. Yeah. Um, he's moved down. He's an agricultural labourer, uh, worked the land and the farmlands. I can, mm-hmm. I can make all those connections. Um, and I've tried, you know, all the searches possible in Norfolk and Suffolk. And again, appreciate we are on the edge of, of the availability of records in those counties. But I can't even find, um, it's not like I've got three possibles and I'm trying to rule two out. I've got zero possibles. I've not even got a close one. Not even a, I'm not even a 10 year sort of, it's as if he just suddenly appeared in South Fanbridge from nowhere. Do you think it's maybe a case of missing records or not transcribed records or just some very bizarre name variant and a co- or a combination? I'm more inclined, more inclined. I mean, it's probably a combination, but now with the benefit of hindsight and experience, I'm guessing it's more likely to be missing records. Okay. Um, his birth and, and the, and the, and his family are, ju- are just that generation's missing from the records for whatever reason. Yeah. Okay. So, what's your kind of most recent definite record for him? The most recent record would be his death in February 1816. Um, we've got a burial um, um, place, location, and an age. So, 18, 1816, when he died, is the most recent record for him. And the earliest one is that the marriage. Is the marriage. In 1794. Yeah. That's not actually that long a period either. So no. <laughs> you've only just got this little glimpse of him. Yeah, he just appears uh, as a sh- short window. He produces 10 children uh, and then disappears and that's it, gone. I've gone sideways. I've tra- traced all the children. And Beard's a bit more difficult to, to find where she landed again. I've got some possibles in Essex, but again, I can't categorically say that that is the Ambeard uh, because she could have come equally as far far away as he had. Yeah, and you haven't got the the benefit of a census that's going to cover that no. and say, yeah, this person is from this village or town in this uh, country. Uh, so you're kind of missing that because I was just thinking there, you know, what about Samuel's siblings, if there are any? I'm sure there must be siblings, but of course we don't know who they are. And just again instinct the fact that we we're still in Essex or we the Chiddicks line was still in Essex and all his children were born only in two parishes mm-hmm. it tells me that they don't stray very far I mean he may have landed and come from Northern Ireland but like, we don't tend to stray very far there must be connections because of the the DNA results um, but it just doesn't doesn't quite stack up. There's a piece missing that I can't see, which is the frustrating bit that will that will connect all of those odd bits. And you think, ah, that's it. <laughs> easy. Why didn't I think of that? Let's hope it is easy after this episode goes out. So what's the best way for people to contact you if they think that they have a clue or a research idea? 
you can reach me on my home email at chidix at yahoo.co.uk. You can find me, of course, on Twitter at chidixtree. And my website and blog page is www.chidixfamilytree.com. So either of those. Okay. And of course, listeners can head over to familyhistoriespodcast.com where they can read this episode's show notes or they can send us an email on hello at familyhistoriespodcast.com and we'll pass it straight on to Paul. Now, while those listeners go off to look for clues in their genealogy bulldozers, I think I might just be able to help you with this. But you're going to need to follow me through to the garage. Okay. Here we are, one time machine. What? This old stuff? Old stuff? I'll have you know that this is highly sought after scientifically advanced equipment. Even this bit that looks like half a toaster welded to a typewriter. I'm beginning to get an insight into just how creative your mind is. I can see how you keep those articles coming. That is a typewriter. Thank you, Shandor. Anyway, this time machine is very sensitive but expertly calibrated. And you know, I thought you might like to go back in time to try to solve that brick wall for yourself. Come on, Andrew. It doesn't really work, though. I thought you was going to show me some long-lost records. It works perfectly, and I'll be happy to demonstrate it if you'd just like to take a seat over there. Perfect. Now, when and where was that brick wall? It's the 20th of February, 1794, the All Saints Church, South Fanbridge in Essex. Oh, I love a wedding. Right, a little bit of fine-tuning... Did you hear a voice? I heard something, but it's just like a bit of interference. Okay, we're all set. Oh, you need this. It's a temporal beacon. Keep it with you at all times and press that big button on the top when you're ready to come home. This one? No, you've got it upside down. That's the emergency goose we saw. Oh, I see. Emergency what? You'd soon find out. Anyway, here we go. Paul Chiddix. Thank you, goodbye, and good luck. What's that face for? Oh dear, Paul. How bad is it? Lisbon in Portugal. Oh no. The Family Histories podcast was presented and produced by me, Andrew Martin. My guest was the awesome Paul Chiddix with John Spike as Chantal Paterfi. If you've enjoyed this episode, click subscribe to get the next one, or please consider leaving a rating or review. Thank you. Approximately no family historians were harmed in the making of this podcast.